I am quite certain that at one time or another, many of you have watched the program on television called Mythbusters. The basic premise for the show is to take two common or popular beliefs and then test those beliefs to see if they are fact or if they're myth. For example, how long does it indeed take to find a needle in a haystack? How long anyway does it take to do that? Or can water dripping on your forehead really drive you nuts? Those are the kind of questions or myths or urban legends, if you will, that the television show Mythbusters puts to the test. It's a humorous, humorous series that seeks to find out what are myths and what are facts. Well, that's what I want us to talk about for a few minutes this morning. Over the last six weeks, we've been discussing the overarching theme of the misunderstood church. Dealing with various aspects of churches of Christ. And things that over the years people misunderstand about what churches of Christ believe and teach. And make no mistake about it, misunderstandings are a common thing. Misunderstandings are easy. It happens very easily in life. For example, if I invited you to come over to our house for dinner, when are you going to show up? You going to show up at noon or are you going to show up that night? You going to show up for dinner at lunch or are you going to show up for dinner at supper? When are you going to show up for dinner? I never will forget. My granddaddy was moving to Denison, Texas. He was leaving the Broadway and Taylor congregation in Gainesville and moving to Denison to preach for the Morton Street Church of Christ there. He had already made arrangements to move and the elders had struck a deal with him and the moving van had been contacted and one of the elders called him and said, Brother Bryant, we'd like for you and your wife to come over and have dinner with us Friday. And he said, well, I'd love to do that. He said, my grandson and my granddaughter are here staying with us a couple of weeks. A couple of weeks, so we need to bring them. Oh, that'd be fine. Bring them all. We'll just see you Friday for dinner. He got off the phone, told my grandma, said, we're going to the dentist and we're going to have dinner at the Hurley's house Friday. She said, do they eat dinner at noon or do they eat dinner at night? He said, I don't know. I didn't ask. Well, she used her pet name for him. She said, well, Stoop, it probably would have been a good idea for you to ask. Now, Stoop, he was very short, but Stoop did not refer to his stature. Stoop was her pet name for him. It was short for stupid. She said, well, Stoop, you should have asked. He said, well, I, I, bet, it, I bet they meant for us to come that night. So about 2.30, 3 o'clock, we loaded up in the car in Gainesville, drove over to Denison. He already had the keys to the parsonage, which by coincidence, was right across the street from the Hurley's house at 105 North Imperial, Denison, Texas. Now, as an aside note, Brother Hurley was probably one of the finest elders I ever knew as a boy growing up. He was a fine, fine man. He was the Tom's Peanut Distributor for Grayson County. And his warehouse was his garage. And I was a teenager. And that garage was filled with cases of those red peanut patties, peanut butter logs, 
chocolate candy. He was a fine man, Brother Hurley was. But that, that's another story. We went to Denison that afternoon. We went up to the parsonage, started looking around. Grandmother was figuring out where she'd put furniture and stuff. And so it's about 5 o'clock, and Granddad said, well, why don't we just make our way over to Hurley's house? It's about dinner time. We rang the doorbell, and Ruby Hurley came to the door. Well, we wondered what happened to y'all at dinner today. Fortunately, they'd, picked, they'd fixed a big meal, and they had dinner ready at 12 o'clock for us to come and eat dinner with them. There was a lot of leftovers, so she started heating up leftovers, and we didn't eat dinner with them. We ate supper there that night. But you see, that's how easy it is to have a misunderstanding. And so, as we finish up this part of this series on the misunderstood church, I want us to think about some common myths about churches of Christ. Things that have been perpetuated over the years. Myths that, in my humble judgment, need to be busted. We've dealt with some myths in previous lessons in this series, some we have not. But have you ever heard the old story about the preacher that died and Peter was showing him around heaven? And he was taking him on a tour of the celestial city. And they're seeing all these rooms filled with people. And as they're walking around, Peter says to the man, he said, Now, shh, be real, real quiet. And I'll explain later. And they walk past a room that the door's closed and there's no windows. And they get well past the room and Peter says, now I want to explain to you, he said that we had to be real quiet going past that room. He said, that's where the church of Christ people are. And they think they're the only ones up here. You ever heard that? You do a Google search. If you'll do a Google search on the computer, you can also find that joke applied to Catholics, Baptists, and Methodists. And probably any other religious group, but I didn't take the time to go through the whole litany of groups. But I found that same joke applied to Catholics, Baptists, and Methodists. You see, that's one of the most common myths. And I have heard it all of my life. Oh, Church of Christ, I know about you. You people are the ones who think y'all are the only ones going to heaven, don't you? Is there anybody in here that's never heard that? That's kind of what I thought. I have never in my life, never in all of my 39 years, have I ever heard a preacher in the churches of Christ make that statement. I have never heard it said by any preacher that Church of Christ members are the only ones going to heaven. I've never heard a preacher say it. I've never heard a member say it. I've never said it. I've never personally heard someone make that statement. I've heard lots of folks over the years accuse us of believing that. I've heard lots of folks over the years accuse us of teaching that. But I've never personally come face to face with it in the church. Having said that, I have no doubt whatsoever in my mind 
that if you looked, you would, you would be able to find that belief among some people in churches of Christ. With somewhere between one and a half and two million members of churches of Christ nationwide, you can actually find almost any belief among our fellowship. Now, let me tell you what I believe. And what I believe the Bible teaches. And what I think most of my brethren believe also. I do not believe that folks are automatically disqualified from heaven if the church they attend does not have Church of Christ nailed to the side of a building on a sign. I also don't believe that it has to be printed on the stationery either. I believe that God saves everyone who meets His prescribed conditions for salvation outlined in this book. Now let me remind us all, we talked about this in a previous lesson, but let me remind all of us what happened. The very first time God offered forgiveness in the name of Jesus. It was on the day of Pentecost, you remember? We talked about, I think it was the third lesson in this series maybe. Maybe the second one. But it was on the day of Pentecost. It was 50 days after the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Devout Jews were assembled there in the city of Jerusalem. And Peter was preaching. Because Jesus had given him that authority in Matthew 16. And Peter was preaching and he stood up. And it's all recorded by Dr. Luke in Acts chapter 2. And Peter preached about the resurrected Jesus Christ. He preached about the Messiah and he told that audience assembled there, he said, this same Jesus you have crucified, God has made both Lord and Christ. And it says in Acts chapter 2 and verse 37, when they heard this, they were pricked in their hearts. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? And Peter answered them, he said, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of your sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is to you and to your children and all of them that are far off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. And with many other words did he testify and exhort, saying, Save yourselves from this untoward generation. Verse 41 tells us their response. They that gladly received his word were baptized. And there were added unto them that day about 3,000 souls. Added to who? That's the antecedent of the 120 that's up in the very first part of Acts chapter 2. And folks, here's the thing. Nothing's changed since that day. There have been no updates, no revisions to the Word of God. There has been no New Testament 2.0 issued. Remember, Peter reminded them in verse 39, the promise is to you, to your children, and to all that are afar off. That's us. I firmly believe that God forgives and gives His Holy Spirit to everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ, 
repents of their sins and is immersed in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit for the forgiveness of those sins. That's what Peter said. I believe that period, exclamation point, in the discussion. That's what I believe. That's what this book teaches. And then you're going to say, whoa. Oh, wait a minute, Tim. Well, what about someone that does not precisely follow Peter's instructions? What about someone that does not follow those precisely? You listening? I will tell you that I gladly leave the ultimate status of their salvation in the hands of God. However, I must confess that based on what I read there, I'm genuinely concerned about their soul. And that means I will do everything I can to persuade them to do the very same thing Peter told those folks in Acts 2 they needed to do. Because when we do exactly what Peter told those people to do, we can be absolutely 100% sure that we're going to get the same blessings they got. And over the years, sometimes I've been successful in persuading folks to do just what Peter said do. And sometimes I haven't been. But if I cannot persuade them Guess what? I'll still be their friend. I'm going to still love them. And I'm going to still leave the matter of their salvation in the hands of God. Because, folks, the matter of their salvation is above my pay grade. Now, let me go a little further with my answer. I'm also convinced that anyone who becomes a disciple of Jesus Christ has an obligation to obey to the very best of their knowledge and their ability everything Jesus has commanded. You see, that's one of the weird quirks of my nature. Being just a simple country preacher like I am. I take what the Bible says at face value. I take what Jesus said at face value. I don't try to figure out what Jesus meant. And I don't try to figure out what Jesus meant to say. And I don't try to figure out what I think Jesus said. I just try to take what the Bible tells me. Do you remember in Matthew 28... After His resurrection, Jesus called the apostles together. And in verse 18 of Matthew 28, He says, All authority is given to Me in heaven and in earth. And then He turns to the apostles He said, Go you, therefore, and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now, stay with me. Teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. What did you say, Lord? 
teaching them to observe all things I have commanded you. You see, I believe with all of my heart that all immersed believers should see the importance of banding together in local congregations that conform to and are committed to every shred of the apostles' teaching. What did Acts 2.42 say about those that were recently baptized on Pentecost? It says in verse 41, They that gladly received His word were baptized. And there were added to them that day about 3,000 souls. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' teaching, breaking of bread, and in prayers. Those that had just been baptized on Pentecost continued constantly in the teaching of the apostles. And that includes, that's part of those all things that Jesus had commanded. And that includes everything concerning the work, worship, and organization of the local church. That's what he's talking about there. Well, then comes the next question. What about others? What about those who are genuinely trying to do God's will to the very best of their knowledge and ability, but they've been given wrong information? What about those that have been taught wrong in certain areas? Do I think that God's grace will cover errors in belief and practice that result from inaccurate teaching? To be sure, I believe that grace will cover some of our errors in understanding. But that said, there are some other things that I believe are relevant to this question. One is this. I know there are limits to God's grace. I just don't know what those limits are. I also know what Jesus said in Matthew 7. We talked about that in a previous lesson. To me, as I said that day, this is one of the most, if not the most, chilling Scripture in the, in the New Testament. It's in Matthew seven twenty one through 23. Jesus said, Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven. But he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven... Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in Thy name? And in Thy name we cast out devils, and in Thy name we did many wonderful works. And then will I say unto them, Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. I never knew you. Why would He say He never knew them? Because of a lack of obedience. I know that God's grace will cover some of our errors in belief and practice that it happened from inaccurate teaching. But I know that there are limits to God's grace. And once again, that's above my pay grade. I don't know what those limits are. 
I do know this about genuine faith. Genuine faith is not content to live in disobedience once truth has been uncovered. And with that in mind, I'm going to do everything in my power to persuade others to see the importance of conforming to the New Testament pattern of living and church life. To the radical idea of restoration that we've been talking about. To restoring things to the way they were in New Testament times. I'll persuade some. And I'll not persuade some. And those I cannot persuade, you ready for this? I'll still love them. I'll still respect them. I'll still be their friend. And I'll leave the determination of their eternal status in the hands of God. And then there's some people that want to perpetuate this myth that churches of Christ are a cult. Do you remember what happened in 2006 when Matthew Winkler was murdered by his wife, Mary? Brother Winkler preached up in Tennessee. And if you remember, there was extensive coverage of that on television, and especially on a program entitled Nancy Grace. And I was reading through that. I remembered all of that. And so I was looking up and reading through the transcripts of the Nancy Grace program. And on one of those particular transcripts, one of her guests described churches of Christ as a cult. In the transcript of the show, he's an unidentified male speaking as an expert. And here's what he said. The Church of Christ is a relatively new church. It was started about 150 years ago by Alexander Campbell, and it's unfortunately a very legalistic sect. And they tend to use methods of intimidation and pressure tactics. Really? Wow. They claim they're the only ones going to heaven. We just handled that myth. And all other people are condemned to hell. It's kind of a borderline cult. Unfortunately. But I don't want to make it out to be some kind of Hare Krishna group, but it has cult-like characteristics. Now, there's a Greek word for everything he just said. It's baloney. I take issue with that statement. But I'm going to give the man the benefit of the doubt that it was a remark based entirely on nothing more than his ignorance and not meant to be mean-spirited. Anyone who's familiar at all with churches of Christ and knows what a cult is knows better than what he said. There's some folks that may disagree strongly with some of our teachings, but they know we're not a cult. You see, a cult is basically a group whose teaching deviates in a major way from the central doctrines of historic Christian faith. To be sure, most cults share certain characteristics. They believe that God has revealed something new or special to them. They have sources of authority in addition to the Bible. And they have a central human leader whom they view as a messenger of God with unique access to God. 
Now remember, I come from a family of preachers. My granddaddy, my daddy, and two uncles, and some others. I grew up around all of them. And they had friends that were preachers, and some of their names of the men that I got to associate with as a young man would be very familiar to you. But growing up around my granddaddy, my daddy, my uncles, and their friends, I know what it's like when the suits come off. And take my word for it. I've never known a one of them I thought was a direct messenger with unique access to God. No one who's genuinely familiar with churches of Christ would ever claim that our foundational beliefs deviate from historic Christianity. To the contrary, they would know we believe the Bible is complete. And the Bible is sufficient. It's not to be added to or subtracted from in any way. It's like Paul wrote to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, and he said, All Scripture is given by the inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness that the man of God might be complete, thoroughly furnished unto every good work. Anyone who really knows churches of Christ would know that we believe the original apostles are the only human leaders that ever had authority over us. To be sure, I've read several books on cults through the years. And not one book I've ever read on cults identifies or examines churches of Christ as a cult. Are you familiar with the song Willie Nelson wrote, Ain't It Funny How Time Slips Away? Time has slipped away from me this morning. There's so much more I wanted to cover. So much, so many other myths I wanted to bust. Things like churches of Christ believe a person is saved by works. Uh-uh. Churches of Christ are legalistic churches. They're not. And then the great theme of our day and time, well, churches of Christ treat women as second-class citizens. No, we don't. We'll save those. Those are for another day and another time. Another series on the misunderstood church. What's important right now is whether or not Jesus is Lord and Master of your life. Because if Jesus is not Lord and Master of all of your life, He's not Lord and Master at all in your life. And if you've never submitted your will to His will, I would beg you to do that before you leave this building this morning. Do the same thing they did on Pentecost, and that will make you a Christian. Nothing more, nothing less, nothing else. Just a simple New Testament Christian. And just like the Lord did on Pentecost, He'll add you to the church. Maybe you've done that. But over the years, you haven't lived God's kind of life, and you haven't lived God's life His way, and that's been observed by others. And you need to come back to the Lord and say, I want to really, for now, make Jesus completely Lord and Master of, your life, of my life. I don't know the need of your life, but if there's some 
nagging need in your life that we can help you to change to make Jesus Lord and Master. It's His invitation as we stand and while we sing.